to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be in chapter 4. So we'll be starting in verse 7. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without companion, without even a son or a brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either fails, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Aliyah. Uh, we are continuing in on our series on wisdom that we are doing this summer. And today, we are going to be talking about the wisdom of friendship, um, kind of a particular subject. So far, we've been going at wisdom more broadly. Uh, what is wisdom? Where does it start? It starts at the fear of the Lord, the character of God. Wisdom is not just something that we naturally acquire as we get older, but it is actually a gift from God that is given to us, um, the wisdom of time, a time for everything. Today, we're looking at this subject of friendship. Um, I have to admit to you, I am both the one who chose this subject and the one who tried to get out of this subject. <laughs> uh, I chose it because as I opened up Proverbs and started reading through it, there was a lot it had to say about friendship, about the kind of people you should spend time with and the kind of people you shouldn't spend time with. But then I went back and started thinking like, yeah, but this is Sunday morning. That sounds like a great podcast or maybe an interesting article we might read or a fun talk on a Saturday morning, but Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday mornings are gospel time. Sunday mornings are time we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, to be reminded of the truth of who God is and what he's done for us and to lift up this glorious thing called the word of God. It didn't take me long, though, to talk myself back into it because friendship isn't just something I found in Proverbs. Friendship something that I saw from some of the earliest pages of the Bible all the way through the end. It's actually something that I saw at the heart of the gospel. So there's where my journey was. And let, let me explain to you some of the things that I've thought about over the last couple of weeks. Friendship is like reading. Okay, friendship is like reading. When you're young, your parents, your teachers, they teach you how to read. And then once you learn how to read and read fairly fluently, how many classes do you take on reading better as you get older? I took zero. I took zero. I don't know about you. Maybe you did. Maybe you took a class on how to read well. Uh, Mortimer J. Adler actually wrote a book called How to Read a Book. And it was actually really, really helpful. I had to read it for a master's class. It was the first time I'd ever thought about this idea that I can actually get better at reading. Maybe, maybe when I was seven and stopped learning how to read, that wasn't like the extent of my ability to read. And I learned how to read better. And there's different types of reading. Friendship is a little bit like reading. 
If you have your own kids, you've ever worked with kids, then you know that one of the main things that you do is teach your kids about friends. Here's how to be a good friend. That wasn't being a very good friend. Here's what friends do. Here's what friends don't do. That's probably not somebody you want to spend time with. Let's spend time with this person. That's a lot of what you do. But then the good thing is, as you get older, you never have any problems with relationships. Oh, why are you laughing? Huh, well, the reality is we actually do. Probably many of us would say, if not today, at points over the last year, three years, multiple years, we've felt lonely. There have been times in which we've felt lonely. There's been times we've felt disconnected. There's been times we thought, I don't have as many friends as I would like to have. Or I've got a lot of people, I'm in their contact list, but we're really not in contact, if you know what I mean. Friendship is something some of us maybe are more naturally, intrinsically good at. Others of us have to work harder for. I don't know if I believe the lie like introverts aren't good friends and extroverts are good friends. Actually, introverts just like to go deeper with a few friends and extroverts are just risk takers who are willing to put all out there with, for more people and they actually don't go as deep with the few. It's just different, different wirings. Um, in 1995, there was a study done and it said that there were about half of Americans had Three friends, three close friends, people that they felt like they could entrust themselves to, who they could go to for anything. Skip forward 15 years, it was a number far less. Okay? Most people, the average American said they only had about two, and one in four people said they have zero. Zero people in their life who they feel is a close friend, who they can go to for anything and everything doesn't seem like the gift of technology is something that's increasing our ability to be friends. We're more connected than ever, and yet we still feel disconnected. Why? Well, because things like social media and your cell phones and email, they are supposed to be maybe tools to be used for friendship, but they are not a supplement for friendship itself. It's not. A Facebook friend is different than a friend, no matter what they'd like to tell you. It is. Uh, we're the kind of people who we are more mobile than ever. We, we can travel the world. We're constantly around other people. You, you can be sitting in this room. Exact, I would bet there are people sitting in this room that don't feel known. You'd probably admit, yeah, Sunnybrook's a pretty friendly place. But some of you would be willing to admit that I don't have any friends here. That's hard, and that's difficult, and that's the reality of life. When you sit in a room full of people, where you should feel like you are literally close to people, maybe this is the kind of place where you become emotionally, spiritually, relationally close to people, you can still be isolated. Or the kind of people who have no limits to activities that we have before us. You can fill up your schedule to the brim from when you wake up to when you go to sleep. Doing things with and among people. And then the next activity comes and whoever you were with doing baseball team or old job and going to a new job or old neighborhood, moving to a new neighborhood, all those other people are just kind of get left behind and you gotta kind of start over. 
In our world, we move primarily because of jobs. I'm taking this new job. It's, it's good for me. It's good for my family. Not many people stay because of friends. Move because of friends. And yet, if you were to look back on your life, if I were to tell you, look back on your life, the most significant moments in your life, you probably think of people. Family, yes. Friends. Both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right? Life is meant to be lived with friends. There is no greater joy than having a great friend. But the probably worst memories you have in life may have to do with friendship. Picture the little kid going to their very first day of school, backpack on, looking at the playground, everybody running around screaming, intimidating, nerve-wracking. And how the next moments go will determine how they view school for a long time. Parents, mom said, yes, amen. You have to hear my kid scream at me, bloody murder, as if I'm abandoning them without any hope every time I drop them off at preschool. It's a pretty key moment in someone's life. It can be traumatizing. Uh, middle school, you go and you look in the lunchroom. Okay? You, you see one group sitting at a table, everyone smiling and laughing. Another table, everyone smiling and laughing, and there's nowhere for you to sit. You're already sitting. You were one of the early ones in there, and you watch people walk by, walk by, walk by. That can hurt. That can hurt pretty bad. The good thing is it's just middle school people that struggle with it, right? No, we already discussed that. Uh, you are never the one that gets invited to the girls' hangout. You're, you're never the one that seems to get invited on that guy's trip. You've kind of always wanted to go on but haven't really said anything to. Never feels good, no matter what age you are, to be on the outside looking in. And we've all felt that, no matter what age you are. Um, talk with, meet with a lot of people who their students are graduating high school and now they find themselves alone at home with their spouse. What are, they, what are things they say? What are things they do? It's like we, got to, we need to re-get to know each other. We kind of forgot how to be friends with each other. Hmm, that's interesting. You live together. You do everything together. How, how could you forget who each other are? How, how can you not remember what it's like to be a friend with this person? Well, because we didn't cultivate it. There wasn't intentionality there. Now we are kind of forced. And if we just kind of coexist like we've been doing, we're going to have to do things different. Or maybe you move into the new season of retirement. And instead of buckling down and using the extra time and energy and money that you have to dig deep friendships and to stay located and to bless people with the relationships you have, you move to somewhere prettier and start over relationally. Or you move to be near grandkids who turn out to be not great best friends. <laughs> Cute, fun for about 24 to 36 hours. Friendship is difficult. It's difficult. Every one of us in our minds can, can think of things, ways we've been hurt relationally, or maybe worse, hurt others relationally. A few years ago, I stood right here during my ordination and talked about not being the worst part of somebody else's story. All of us can think of times where others have hurt us and that caused us relational friendship wounds. Maybe we need to do a better job of thinking about times in which we've been the ones that have hurt others. I can think of some. 
My very first fight, you know where it was? Sayokomo. Kids camp, where junior hires are leaving for today as we speak. And you know what happened? When, I'm, when you're a kid, you, you're not thinking about this. You're just, think, you're just kind of reacting to a moment. As I'm looking back, with, and that's kind of what wisdom is, looking back and, and trying to discern what would have been right and then growing from that past experience, past hurt, or past failure. Me and my friends, friends that I still hold dear and true today in contact with a lot, we had a tight bond and did everything together, went everywhere together. We were always around. And when you have that, it's really, really great to be inside of that bond. But if you're on the outside, if you're new, and you see that, what do you want? I'd like to be inside of that. And when you're a little kid, you don't always handle that moment well, right? Sometimes you, you, you make fun of that, or you poke fun, or you, you try to create your own group that's like, against that other group, and you, but really you're crying out for like attention and to be loved and to be known. I, I want to be a friend just like you guys have this friendship. I didn't know that then. All I saw was somebody being a punk. And what did I do? I dealt with it the way I thought was right. And instead of welcoming in a new friend who maybe felt alone and isolated at this new environment that he'd not been in, I made him feel even more alone. A place like church camp. You're supposed to come and hear about the love of God. People there who are the church youth group kids making you feel more alone than ever. Ooh, that hurts. It hurts. Um, the good thing about this is, number one, um, we serve a God who desires to be in friendship with us. And we serve a God who can take our past pains, whether it's relational pains we've received or relational pains we've given, and he can redeem those things. And so today, I want to look at what the Bible has to say about friendship. And, and I don't just want to give like, here are 10 tips to be a better friend. And we're going to go all out and we're all going to be best friends now because all 1,200 of us are going to be the bestest of friends. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. What I think we can do as we look at what friendship is, like biblically, is we can strive to be the kind of friend we'd like to have. That we can paint a picture that's so beautiful, so lovely, so attractive, so desirable, we can't help but want to pursue it. We can't help but want to cultivate friendship. That we'd start to look at people who are sitting around us, that are out in the lobby, that are out in the world, that are across the street in our neighborhood differently as people who need a friend. And maybe talk differently, pursue differently, love differently. So what does the Bible say about friends? Well, first, we need friends because God created us as relationally needy beings. You like being told you're relationally needy? Every, I mean, no. Let me just answer that. No, hopefully you don't. Huh, that's weird. Why wouldn't you? Because you grew up in an individualistic culture where you're going to do your own thing, make your own way. 
You don't need anyone. If I choose to be in a relationship with someone, that's up to me, but I don't need anyone. God made you and made me as relationally needy beings. Let that sit for a moment. Don't believe me? See what God says. Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. How many times had Adam and Eve sinned up to this point? None. None. This is primarily introducing the gift of marriage to us, but it is actually true of every human, single, young, old, married, or otherwise. You, it is not good for you to be alone. You have been made as a relationally needy being. And this makes sense, by the way. As much as you think you are independent, as much as you think you can get by on your own, you can't. You're a dependent being. You need food to survive. You need sleep. As much as you don't think you do, you need sleep to survive. Rest is something that God built into the system that you need. You need oxygen in order to breathe. You need friends because God made you relationally dependent. He made you relationally dependent on him and not just on him, but on each other. And that is why he says it is not good for people to be alone. Therefore, we should never ever have a time in which we're alone. And therefore, we should always surround ourselves with lots and lots of people. In the Now, okay, wisdom says, let us hold these things in tension. It's not good for us to be relationally isolated people, beings. We think we don't need friends. There are times in which it's good for you to be alone and to be quiet and to be still before God. Um, the Bible um, says that, and we're going to build on that, but here are some dead Jesus followers have said some pretty interesting things on friendship as well. J.C. Ryle says this, this world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. Can I get an amen? This brightest uh, the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. This is, this is like a, a pastor, Anglican pastor, theologian. The brightest sunbeam in this world is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. There's nothing better than having a good friend, going through this life with a good friend. C.S. Lewis says, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods, the chief happiness of life. Augustine pretty well-known guy who wrote a lot, thought a lot about the Lord. Two things are essential in this world, life and friendship. Both must be prized highly and not undervalued. Life and friendship are nature's gifts. God created us that we might exist and live. This is life, but we are not to remain solitary. There must be friendship. There is something in how God ordered the world how he ordered our lives and that he made us relationally dependent beings that would need him and that we would need each other and that's how he designed it to be. And so when you are off relationally with someone and there's just something inside you can't see, yeah, that's, God designed it like that. God designed it like that because he wants us to be in union with him and in communion with each other. Um, Job, let's look at the book of Job. Chapter two, uh, after Proverbs, the book that talks about friends the most is the book of Job. 
And if you remember the book of Job, Job goes through this crazy difficult time. God allows him to be tested. He allows him to go through all this hardship and he refuses to completely turn his back on God. And then he has some friends who come to his side. And this is pretty cool. Listen to this from Job chapter two. Now in Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Sufite, and Zophar the Naphthite heard about all this adversity that had happened to him. Each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust in the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights. Seven days and nights. But no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. And that is probably how the story should have ended. <laughs> Everything, if we would have just ended Job there, it would have been like, wow, that is really cool how Job suffered so well, even not knowing why he was suffering. He didn't turn his back on. And that is so cool how his friends came and spent time with him and just sat with him and mourned with someone who was mourning because that's what friends do. We mourn with those who mourn. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just sit with those who are having a difficult time. But for like 30, 40 more chapters, we see that that's not actually what happens. Job and his friends go back and forth about why what's happening to him is unjust and why they think what's happening to him must be a result of his sin. And they go round and round and round and it's kind of exhausting to read through all of it. I know because we've spent the last 38 weeks reading one chapter a day in our staff meetings. <laughs> it's like, yes, Job, we understand your argument. You don't think you deserve this. And yes, friends, we know you think he deserves it. There's something in his life that you think he did wrong. And that's where they went wrong. They started to speak. They started to speak on behalf of God. And if you remember how Job ends, God doesn't like how they speak of him. Job 38 and 42 say this. Who is this who obscures my counsel? This is God speaking. With ignorant words. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. After for like four chapters, God just kind of mic drops all over Job and his friends about how amazing and awesome he is and gives no explanation for why Job was suffering. Says this. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Elphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and with your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, who's going to act like a priest for them, and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. It's an interesting lesson in friendship. It's an interesting lesson in learning to suffer well with people. And it's something I've seen in you. One of the reasons I was so excited about this text initially and then again later was because I, I see in you, people of Sunnybrook, brothers and sisters, friends at Sunnybrook, the kind of people who are willing to be with friends in the midst of their suffering, to go and sit, and to, to go and be to, to just be a crying shoulder, to visit in hospitals, to, to visit when you can't come in, to, to take care of the needs of each other. I, I see that in you, and I want to say do so more and more. 
And if we can take a lesson from Job's friends after they start to speak, may we be slow to speak, quick to listen, as our brother James says. Another friendship that we see in the book of the Bible is Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi. You may remember that uh, Ruth's husband had just died, Naomi's son. And it made most sense for for Ruth to leave Naomi and to go back to her homeland, uh, to go back to her original family. Um, But listen to what uh, this exchange from Ruth chapter 1. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And Ruth is this incredible picture of someone choosing to be in relationship with someone. It probably would have made most sense. It would have been easiest for her to go back to her parents, to go back to her family of origin, but she chooses to be in relationship, moves toward a relationship with Naomi. And the rest of the book of Ruth is this beautiful picture of this friendship developing and the Lord blessing Ruth for this choice to stay with Naomi, to stay with him at some level. Um, Probably the most famous friendship in the Bible is from David and Jonathan. Um, David and Jonathan, these these two pals uh, that developed over time. Saul was king. David was anointed to be king after. And Saul was actually Jonathan's dad. Saul wanted to kill David, but Jonathan had pity on David, and David and Jonathan became really, really good Friends, And here are a couple verses that talk about that. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. As much as he loved himself. Um, It's interesting that Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to talk about the end. The primary means we should think about each other is in terms of like this David and Jonathan type bond. We always talk in terms of like being family, which is good, obviously biblical. I think we need to do a better job of thinking of each other in terms of friends who love each other as ourselves. And then uh, 2 Samuel one twenty six. I grieve for you. This is after Jonathan had died. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of a woman. That is an interesting image. An interesting image. In a world that thinks sex is like the ultimate, pent-ultimate thing in the whole wide world, David seems to say there's something even better, and that's like friendship. Which, if you're single, that's actually, that should be super encouraging to you. That Jesus lived a full, abundant life as a single person, had lots of friends and seemed to need nothing. That David recognizes that there's something that transcends the difficulties of this life, and that's the bond of a friend. For somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction, that should be encouraging, that you can have friendships, God-honoring friendships, 
because that is how God designed us to be, to be in relationship with each other in a way that honors God and represents God to the rest of the world. That's pretty cool. Um, there's some other verses that talk about, uh, that talk about this. Um, I want to talk about the verses that Aliyah read from Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12. And we have this picture of a guy who's working hard, okay? I thought this was a pretty apt scripture because in some ways I think it's pretty, um, uh, it's pretty revelatory for us. In Stillwater, we are a people that really prioritizes success on the world's terms. We, we spend a lot of time trying to move up the ladder. Spend a lot of time trying to accumulate for ourselves wealth. And what Ecclesiastes 4 tries to say is that this is futile. It's like trying to grab vapor. Scott's going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But listen to this again. I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, somebody who doesn't have a friend, a close relationship, without even a brother or a son. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. He got all the success, he got all the wealth, he, he did everything he was trying to get, but he did it alone. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and de- depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. That thing when I was young that I thought I wanted to be famous, to be well known, to acquire wealth and power and success for myself, I finally got it at the end of the rainbow, the leprechaun wasn't there. Uh, I got this thing, and it's actually not as fulfilling as I thought. It's kind of a miserable thing. And then the writer says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity on the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm? Uh, One person keep alone, keep warm. And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. And then the verse you've probably heard at a lot of weddings, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Um, while it may have implications for marriages, this is primarily just a relational proverb, wisdom piece. Okay? Two is better than one. Three is better than two. Trying to go through this life alone is, is not how you were designed to go through it. Whoever told you that sex is the most amazing thing, whoever told you that money, power, success are the the things you're trying to work toward and that'll give your life purpose, they're lying to you. What this writer's trying to help you see is that I've been there, I tried to do it, I tried to do it alone, and it's not worth it, it's futile. You were built, you were created as a relationally dependent being who needs close friends. And Proverbs Listen to this gamut of of Proverbs. Um, Chapter 16, a contrary person spreads conflict and a gossip separates close friends. A violent person lures his neighbor, leading him on a path that is not good. The kind of people you're around, the kind of words you use about your friends can dictate the kind of relationships you have. If you're given to speaking poorly about people, I, I would say you probably need to check your tongue Confession, the, the person who speaks poorly about others behind their back, that's divisive, that's not unifying, that's not loving, that's not friendly. Chapter 17, verse nine, whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it separates friends. 
Don't make friends with an angry person and don't be a companion to a hot-tempered one or you will learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Uh, You've heard the phrase, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Um, Who you spend the most time with is who you end up looking like, who you end up becoming. Choose wisely who you spend time with. In Proverbs 13, verse 20, the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but good rewards the righteous. 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. 18, 24, one with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. Many seek a ruler's favor, and everyone is a friend of the one who gives gifts. Jesus said, uh, use your worldly wealth to acquire friends. <laughs> I don't know if you've thought about money like that. Uh, you're like, are you talking, telling us to like, bribe people to be our friends? I, I'm not. The writer of Proverbs and Jesus are, though. So, I mean, but that's true, right? Like, yeah, that's, when people are kind to you and generous toward you, you're like more inclined to be kind and you're trying to outdo each other in honor all of a sudden. There's a verse about that too. Uh, You can think of people who are generous toward you with their words, generous towards you with their time, generous towards you with their finances or their food because it creates a bond between the two of you. There's something wise there, something to be heard. Proverbs 27, 6, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Now there's Proverbs for you, okay? Your friends need to be the kind of people that can look at you, see your brokenness, see your sin, call it out in you, and love you anyway. You need to do a good job of cultivating honesty in your relationships, vulnerability in your relationships, because you and I are very broken people. You and I have lots of specks and logs in our eyes. And we, yes, we need to do a good job trying to get them out of our own, but God has de- designed us in such a way that we need the people around us to point it out because you're blind to whatever you're blind to. And if you don't have the courage, if you don't have the love to call that out in someone else, how are they to grow? How are they to look more like Jesus? God designed it so that you might be the one to say such a thing. Um, Proverbs 17, 17, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Those are like some of the pillars of friendship. Yes, time. Uh, Over time, you build a friendship. uh, And you invest time in order to build a friendship. You do experiences. You do things shoulder to shoulder and sometimes face to face to cultivate friendship. You go through difficult times together to cultivate friendship. You, You go through conflict together You forgive each other. You learn how to mend a broken bond with each other. Those are things, pillars of a good, healthy friendship. There's intentionality there. And it's all um, focused toward loving this person. Friendship is this affectionate bond, this intentional pursuit of another person. Sometimes it's this unnecessary care. You know, you ever had that moment where like, you thought of me? You got me that or you did that for me? Because... For no reason. It's not my birthday. It's not Father's Day. You just did that for me. Wow. There is an intentional pursuit with good friendships. Um, But what about the foundation? And this gets back to why I thought about maybe 
backing out of this sermon. What does friendship have to do with the gospel? Why would we use a Sunday morning to talk about this? If friendship is this intentional of moving, intentional move toward others, who was the first one to move toward us? It was him. It was God. God existed eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit in the triune God. He had this relationship, this perfect, loving bond. And then out of the overflow of God's character, the overflow of God's nature, he, he created the world. He created us, made us, weaved us together in certain ways, being even relationally dependent on him and on each other. Uh, our foundation for friendship is in the very character of God. And the beauty of the gospel is that the gospel proves that God, the one who made you, desires to be in relationship with you. The God who made all things wants to be a friend of yours. And he proved that through Jesus Abraham, called a friend of God. Moses, called a friend of God. Proverbs says those who are pursuing righteousness, God calls his friend. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is accused of all these things, of being friends of sinners like you and me. In John chapter 15, he says, I want you to be known by your love for each other. I want you to know that if you obey my commands, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. The God of the universe wants to be your friend. And he proved that in the good news, the good work in the person of Jesus. So it makes sense that the New Testament writers, they go back and forth of talking about us, the church, as brothers and sisters or friends. Dear friends, let me teach you something. Dear friends, let me teach you something. Our basis, our foundation for friendship with each other is that God has existed in a perfect, loving relationship with himself and he has poured that out to us and he desires to be a friend with you and me. Even though he tur we turned our back on him, he showed his face to us. And that is a beautiful thing. That is what should be our driving force for love, for friendship. And communion, even in the, the phrase communion, there, there's a unity there. I don't know if you listen to our podcast, the Consider This podcast, but we talked about communion um, a couple of weeks ago. And the Corinthians church got in trouble for a couple of reasons. They were, I would say in summary, not being good friends toward each other. There were some people in that church who had a lot and some people in that church who didn't have much. And when they gathered for communion, they would gather for a meal. And those who had a lot would get full and they would get drunk. And those who didn't have much, well, they would be kind of left on the outside looking in. This moment, which was meant to unify us, they were using for division. And not only were they using it for division, but this thing that was meant to remind us of the holiness of God and the love of God, they were using it as an opportunity to sin. And Paul reminds us that when we take this, it's a, it's a serious moment. It's a cause for reflection, but it's also a cause for celebration that the God who made you desires to be a friend of yours. And he proved that when Jesus went to the cross. Um, Tim Keller recently passed away and said that the cross is like the example that God wants to be a friend to you. The cross proves that God wants to be a friend to you, to reconcile a relationship with you, a loving relationship with you. And so we take this bread, which represents his body, and we eat well together, friends.
we take this cup and we drink well together. Now, my friends, let us stand and let us worship the God who desires to be our friend.